As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Red Hot Chili Writers Podcast. We're your hosts, Vasim Khan and Abir Mukherjee, two crime authors ready to expose themselves on air for your titillation, edification and amusement. We'll be talking life, pop culture and the pursuit of the creative arts, all seasoned with just a dash of garam masala. It's that time of year, dear listeners. It's award season. Grammys, the Oscars, the BAFTAs, and the upcoming British Book Awards, for which this podcast has been selected as a media partner in the crime and thriller category. But fear not, Abir and I have no intentions of going up on stage to slap anyone on the big night. Abir, how are you, my friend? My friend, I am on my sickbed. I'm ill. I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm struggling through because the show must go on. But I have the dreaded COVID-19. Well, I'm sorry to hear that, but I must um, I must ca- uh, question your definition of sickbed because <laughs> uh, looking at you <laughs> on screen, you appear to be quite vertical uh, with a glass of whiskey in your hand. <laughs> That's medicine. Uh, I have COVID. I, I picked this up, I think, in France. Uh, I was at a big crime festival there called Quai du Polar, uh, which I'm sure you'll, you, if you haven't gone, I'm sure you'll get an invite soon enough. Um, and it was great fun. It is the biggest crime festival in France, um, and it's it, they do things differently. Have you have you done a festival in France yet, Vas? I have not. Uh, right. Well, you know how a British festival is basically: you go along, you do a talk for an hour, and then you do a signing for an hour, and then you spend three days in the pub with your mates, right? Well, the French have a very different approach to it. Um, so what happens is you turn up, and you sit in this big hall with piles of your books, and all the authors do this, and you are sitting there for approximately two to three days, signing books as people wander around. Uh, Every now and again, you'll do a talk, so you get pulled in for an hour to do a talk, but then it's back to the books and back to trying to sell books. Um, And everyone eats communally, so you have your lunches with all the other authors, and you have your dinners with all the other authors, so it's full on for like three days. Um, it's a packed schedule of either selling books or doing talks or eating and drinking. Um, and, you know, in all of that, with all of that schedule, with all that hecticness, I managed to catch COVID. Well, I'm just I'm just imagining you sitting on your voluminous bottom for um, for three days straight. Um, uh, I prefer the term derriere uh, because it was France. So I was sitting on my derriere. I should say, I should point out that, you know, French, a lot of French authors are far too cool to to do anything as gauche as to sort of interact with the, the passersby. So they were, a lot of them were just sort of sitting back. You want my book? Fine. 
don't expect me to to sell it to you. Um, whereas I was taking the much more sort of British approach or American approach of 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 trying to get people to buy the books, and it, it seemed to work. You know, I got a lot of people coming up to me. Um, another a French author said to me, "You could sell sand to the Arabs," um, and it was great fun. And there were some great authors there. I spent a lot of time with Irvin Welsh, which was lovely. Oh wow! Yeah, I told him. He said, "So where where are you from?" I told him I'm from Hamilton, and he said, "Oh, Hamilton, that's Glasgow without the glamour," um, which is <laughs> very accurate. I did give you plenty of good suggestions as to as to what to do to try and shift those books, um, but you poo pooed. You poo pooed my suggestions. Well, well maybe, maybe I told you, you wear suggest a... some of those suggestions to our listeners. Well, I did. I suggested that you wear a, a sandwich board, for instance. <laughs> sandwiches, a baguette board, you mean in France? I'm going to say. But tell me, what have you been up to? Well, I've been in the, in, in tip-top health. Um, mm -hmm. I've been preparing for cricket season. I've got my injuries out of the way early. <laughs> so um, I uh, I played a practice game where oh. I hit a six, which is Did a big you? deal in cricket. It and is. then I promptly, I promptly retired so that I wouldn't get out. <laughs> you declared on six. How, here's a question. Here's a serious question. How often do you hit a six when you're playing? Not as often as I'd like. <laughs> Was this the first? <laughs> no, I'm 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 in good health. I'm looking forward to the summer, not just because of the cricket, but because, uh, as we were discussing uh, off air just now, we're we're doing lots of uh, festivals. Um, I know COVID is not completely gone, but yeah, most sure. festivals are now uh, open for business, and uh, we're both going to be out and about meeting readers, as as is our our want and our desire. Well, where can people see us? Where will people be able to see us in the flesh fast? Let's let's tell them a wee bit about that. Where are you going to be? All of the information is on our websites. Uh, it's on uh, your website. No. Mine's not up to date. I need to update oh, mine. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you where I'm going to be, ladies and gentlemen. I'm going to be at Chipping Norton on the 23rd of April. Uh, both you and I are doing Crime Cymru uh, on the 30th of April. Isn't that right, Vass? Um, and then we're both doing I Write in Glasgow, although you're doing it online. Um, and that, that for now, that's that's the next couple of months. You got anything other than that in April and May? Um, I'm going to be at Deepings in Market Deeping. Uh, I'm speaking at Crime Fest in Bristol. Uh, I'm doing a talk for the Royal Asiatic Society. Uh, and then an, intri yeah, an int intriguing new one just outside of London called Wild Words. So it's a sort of a, a semi-nature setting uh but with literary stuff thrown in oh so, so you'll be semi-naked and you'll be um <laughs> you'll, be, you'll, be, you'll be tossing your wild words hither and thither what have we got this week so this week we are chatting to a hero of mine a crime writing hero the person who in in great part inspired me to write my first thriller we are chatting to thriller writer extraordinaire david baldacci a man who has sold 150 million books and whose career began, and in some ways my own crime writing career began, with the novel Absolute Power, which later became a blockbuster starring Clint Eastwood and Gene Hackman. So super excited about that. Ah, and he's responsible for you writing. Sounds a bit like a war crime, that, doesn't it? It's got a lot to answer <laughs> for that one. I'll tell you what I want to talk about before we go into um, the, the interview with David. I want to talk about the um, the altercation, shall we call it, at the Oscars. Ah, yes. Are you aware of what happened? I am. I am, and my my views are are, are sort of in flux on that. Why don't you explain what happened, and then we can talk about our views on it. Well, I can't imagine there's anyone on the globe who now doesn't know um, the the facts of the incident. So the Oscars night, biggest night in uh, in American. Uh, moviedom <clears throat> and Will Smith, a uh, famous actor, was up for the best male uh, performance of the year. Uh, and then what happened was that the comedian Chris Rock did what comedians do when they're invited to to host things at the Oscars and to give out awards. He made some jokes about members of the audience, but this time he went a little too close to the bone. He made a joke about Will Smith's wife, also a famous actress, Jada Pinkett Smith. And the joke was about her hair. 
And it turns out that Jada has had some issues with with hair loss. And so the joke became quite offensive in that in that respect. And Will didn't like it. So he went up on stage. Extraordinary. I, I was watching it live because I'm a huge movie buff, as you know. 4 a.m. in the morning and I was watching it live and he went up on stage and he slapped Chris Rock live uh, in front of, I think, 16 million viewers. And then he sat back down again. And we all thought it was part of the performance. We thought, you know, this was like a setup that, that Chris had done the joke and Will was supposed to come up and do this pretend slap. Uh, but then Chris Rock uh, said, I've just had the shit slapped out of me by Will Smith. And I thought, well, he can't really say that, can he? He can't use the S word. And then Will Smith started using the F word and shouting at it, Chris, and saying, you know, keep my wife's name out of your effing mouth, et cetera, et cetera. And that's when I sort of sat up because I thought, this is unbelievable. This can't. This, this this has to be real now because he wouldn't be using the F word. And what was extra, was extraordinary was that uh, one, Chris Rock kept his composure, gave out the award that he was meant to give out. And then nothing else happened. Um, Will Smith carried on. Everyone else carried on. He went up on stage. He accepted his Oscar. Uh, he got a standing ovation for it. I mean, he gave a very emotional, tearful speech where he apologized to the Academy Um but the repercussions really started after the event when people began to realize that this was real. And this was absolutely, in most people's opinion, uh, not on, but not everyone's opinion. Um, maybe you'd like to argue the other side of the case. Well, I'll tell you my thoughts, right? Because it varied um, the more that I read about it. So I woke up like a normal person. I didn't watch it at four in the morning. I sort of got my news on breakfast TV. Uh, and the first thing you see is Will Smith hitting or slapping Chris Rock um, because of a joke made about his wife. Now, on that information, I thought that's ridiculous. Um, it, it's it's bad. I mean, he should never have done it. And I thought two things. I thought, one, you know what? It's it's a shame for him as much as anything. This was his, the highest moment in his career, and it's ruined. It's ruined by his actions minutes before. You know, when him winning the Oscar minutes before he's uh, just slapped somebody. Um, I felt really bad for him at that point. Um, I also felt that this was ammunition for racists as well. I felt people were going to point out that, you know, it was a black man who's done this. Uh, in the whole history of the Oscars, it's never happened. And it was grist to the mill for racists. But those are my first thoughts. Uh, and then more information came out about the content of the joke, and, and as you say, it was a joke at uh, Will Smith's wife's expense about, uh, and she has alopecia. Um, so she has, as you say, problems with her hair. So I felt the joke was extremely crass um, and it should never have been made. It wasn't even funny. Uh, it was just hurtful. Um, and I'm just thinking at that point, well, what would I have done as a husband? Um, I'd have been pissed off. I can understand why he did it. I can understand his the emotions that must have been going through him to cause him to do that. Um, but then I came back. So at, at that point, I had quite a bit of sympathy for him. But then I came back to the the fact that you know you do not you, at no point do you meet words with violence. Uh, it, it's a bad example to be setting, and it's a bad example to set on the Oscars. Um, so. I went sort of full circle. I went from thinking this was stupid to thinking it's understandable to thinking, you know what, you should still have the self-control not to do something like that, even if you are uh, incited. And that's what it was. It was incitement. Um, so overall, I think I'm back to square one. I, I feel a lot of sympathy for him. I feel sympathy in terms of his greatest, the great, the pinnacle, what should be the pinnacle of his success was ruined by a that joke and b yeah, his absolutely stuff. and the repercussions have been quite odd so he's <clears throat> will smith is a member of the academy uh, and they're the, that's the voting body for the people who vote for the oscars in the first place oh it's like you <laughs> when you won the uh, cwa dagger <laughs> sadly no i'm not part of the judging panel otherwise i'd give myself one every year i'd give myself all of the daggers every year uh, will um Will resigned before he was pushed. I don't think they can take his Oscar away. Uh, but also, um, Chris Rock, his popularity has gone through the roof. So he's on a world tour at the moment and his tickets apparently sold out within days. And 
the ticket prices jumped five times. You know, I'm always, I've always been a fan of Will Smith, um, you know, from his earliest days in acting. I thought he's done so much, starting with so little. Um, you know, and, and I, I think less of Chris Rock than I do of Will Smith. Um, I don't know if Chris Rock wrote this joke or whether it was a team of writers or whatever. It wasn't funny and it should never have been made. I mean, if you're going to insult people, do it in the way that Ricky Gervais does. Uh, at least make it poignant, make it, make it, let it have a political point rather than, you know. When, when the, the thing is, you can't predict what will upset people. Yeah, but I was, mean, the thing is, that was just hurtful, right? That, that was, was hurtful. I agree. That was hurtful. However, what we haven't heard yet is Chris Rock's uh, side of things as to whether or not he claims not to have known about the medical condition. And it was just a joke about he thought that maybe she'd just cut her hair short and uh, and it was a design choice, uh, a style choice, sorry. And that's yeah. why he made the joke. So we haven't heard that side of the story yeah. yet. I don't know. I think I'm guessing he probably knew. I, I mean, I, don't I mean, know. the thing is, though, I mean, you'd agree that comics are continuing our French team agent provocateurs at times right and they do these things deliberately to create reactions uh, and you wouldn't want comics to have to give up that ability to no, provoke absolutely. if they absolutely. thought they were going to get slapped absolutely but i think comedy is is funny that sort of comedy is good when it's punching up right when yeah. it's punching yeah. down it, it that does not appeal to me and I, I think it's wrong i mean it's like going back to the 70s where you know, comedians make jokes about blacks and gays and women, and that's punching down, right? Um, I much yeah. prefer, you know, if you're going to be satirical, if you're going to be biting, punch up, punch it at the people that have got power. Don't punch down at a woman who's got a medical condition. I think the next time you and I are on stage together, we're going to have to go through our notes carefully, because I tell you now, if somebody comes up on stage to give me a punch in the face, I'm going to stand behind you. I'll be out of the room, mate. I will, I'll be punching you too. I'll be like, hit him again. Kick him, kick him. <laughs> I think on that note, let's go to our guest interview with David Baldacci. Next, we're talking to one of the most famous thriller writers of his generation, David Baldacci, author of over 40 internationally best-selling novels, Published in more countries than a bear and I could find on a map, 150 million books sold, and a man so charismatic, he was once called the Robert Redford of crime writing. David, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, I, I, thanks for being here. I had not heard that one. <laughs> well, I, just made, I'm, I just made it up, David. But I, thought you, I thought you did. It's funny, I was just watching The Natural on television a couple of days ago. So. Oh, what a wonderful, ah. wonderful film. Yeah. You've got, to, you've got to use that now, David. Oh, I absolutely do. I, I'm not sure who I would use it with. Not my wife, that's for sure. <laughs> well, listeners, I, I mean, I, uh, uh, our listeners, obviously, they can't see you, but, uh, you know, you've got, a, you've got that, you've got the Redford chin. <laughs> Thank you, yeah. <laughs> now, before we, before we get started... American good looks, isn't he? He's got American tanned good looks. Um, <laughs> makes, makes us sick, David. Makes us sick how, how glamorous you are. Sorry, I'm interrupting. My, my friend Vaseem, uh, I should say... You know, we're both big fans of your books, but Vasim is—you're a childhood hero of Vasim. I'm, I'm a super fan. I'm going to tell you a, a story, David, before we get into the questions. So, uh, as a writer, I'm going to pitch it to you as a, in a very novelesque way. So, I want you to imagine a a handsome young Asian man that looks a lot <laughs> like myself. He's uh, he's grown up in the UK, but he's ended up in India at the age of 23 to work in in Mumbai. And one day, I'm in the back of a car. Uh, and we stop at a set of traffic lights and there's this this uh, street urchin who's selling books. And I decided to buy a couple of books. And one of the books that I buy uh, is called Absolute Power by a writer I'd never heard of, David Baldacci. Now, I have to say that I did not realize at the time that you wouldn't get any royalties on these street side book sales. Uh, which I... <laughs> So I apologize. He was making a living, which was good. It was more important. <laughs> well, fair enough. I mean, this was 25 years ago, and I didn't know anything about the industry then. I, uh, but anyhow, so I took the book home, started reading it, was up half the night trying to finish it, couldn't, was late to work the next day because of it, came back, finished it the next evening. And then I decided, having finished this wonderful, wonderful book, that I would write my first thriller. Now, I'd had a go at trying to write a couple of literary-type books before, not to my success, and I decided to write, based on absolute power, I decided to write a book about the American president set in Washington, D.C., 
Uh, it wasn't as successful as yours, probably because... It's absolute added, rubbish. Well, I added aliens into the mix, which I probably oh. shouldn't have done. A completely true story, by the way, David. But it was, was my it. first attempt uh, at writing crime fiction, and now seven books. Much later in life, I, I was published as a crime author, seven books I, in. Uh, and, you know, for me, it is just incredible to have you on the show. Uh, 25 years I've been reading reading your work. And I just it's just... Feeding back to you that sometimes when you write and your books ripple out across the world, uh, people like me and Abir, we, you know, we've come from, as outsiders into the publishing industry and especially into genre fiction like crime fiction. Uh, and it's people like you who've inspired us to be here. So thank you so much for finding the time today. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. It's a, it's a great story. I'm glad. It, you know, if, if anybody could be inspirational for other people, that's a wonderful thing. So, well, you yeah. say that, David, but what you're saying is it's your fault that we have to read Basim's <laughs> book. You inflicted Basim on the world. So, David, let's start at the beginning. Tell us about growing up. Yeah, I grew up in uh, Richmond, Virginia, um, with with uh, you know a very ethnic last name like Baldacci in the in the what used to be the capital of the, the old capital of the Confederacy during the Civil War. Um, I used to say that in in Richmond, if your last name wasn't Lee, Jackson, or Stewart, nobody gave a shit. So um, it was it was an interesting place to grow up, you know, in a very segregated society with an ethnic last name and sort of feeling like an outsider. But I think. That's a pretty powerful tool for a writer because it makes you an observer and it makes you want to watch people and think and curious and all of that led me, you know, eventually to become uh, a writer. And I was a voracious reader, you know, books were how I saw the world. I never left Rich Richmond as a kid, really. We didn't have an opportunity, but I saw the world through books. And so I could have grown up really differently. I mean, I grew up with a lot of people who have a very dated view of what the world should be like. And I could have been caught in that trap, except, you know, the libraries liberated me. So I was able to travel the world through books. And, you know, I saw people who didn't look like me, dress like me, eat, pray, learn like I did, speak like I did, but we shared that, you know, core of humanity. And I, I have to say that books really are one of the main reasons I turned out the way that I did. And thank God for that. It's, it's interesting how many people come on and say, and and think of themselves as outsiders, David. It's 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 refreshing to hear you say that too. Um, what was that like, though, growing up as a? Well, I, I assume your your descent is Italian. Um, yes. how were you seen in this very polarized society? Well, first of all, nobody can pronounce my last name. Um, well, I, I have a similar problem. Yes, it's it's like you know you know southern tongues can't wrap themselves around a number of vowels from the same word. Um, and so that was that was sort of an immediate. I, and I also really never fit into any type of clique either. I was I was a good student, and I was an athlete. I played American football. I wrestled in high school and college. But I never belonged to any of those cliques. I was just sort of in the middle, looking out. There was a book I read growing up called Harriet the Spy. Um, they later made it to a movie where she was just really curious about everybody she met. She kept a journal of people, and uh, I was kind of like that. People fascinated me from a very early age, I wanted to try to understand what made them tick. Uh, eventually, you know, a lot of that stuff made it into my pages. But I really, I, I think that, you know, the people who are in the middle of the party and doing all the talking and everybody, they're the focus of attention. They're not the people that end up really being the people to chronicle, you know, events. It's the people, the watchers, the observers outside of that, that are looking in through the, through the glass at everybody else. Uh, those are the ones who end up sort of writing about it. I mean, both of us, Seema and I, are in the same way outsiders. You know, we are, we are the kids of immigrants, uh, and so much of our work is observational. It's observation, observing communities that we're part of, but still not a hundred percent part of. Um, so there's there's a lot of there's a lot that echoes there. Now, um, you before turning to writing, you 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 already had a successful career as a lawyer in Washington D.C. Yes. Uh, tell us tell us what that was like practicing law. At, you know, at the very heart of the American political system. Yeah, I was. I litigated cases all over the country. I was like the the hated, dreaded Washington D.C. lawyer. You know, flying in from out of town, uh, trying these cases, and people, you know, thinking you were scum. Um, it was exhilarating and challenging, uh, and you know, it was kind of like being gladiators with pinstripe suits, um, and it was going to war every day. Uh, so I like the intellectual challenge of it, but I have to say, it does wear you down. Um, and it's not really how I wanted to spend my time, although, you know, there, there are a handful of lawyers who have turned writers, you know, John Grisham and Scott Turow have been friends of mine for a long, yeah. long time. 
And I, people, if they, they think about it, the two professions share a lot of the same attributes. You know, as a lawyer, the only arrows I had in my quiver were words. I had to take the same set of facts the other side had in the trial record and argue a completely diametrically opposed viewpoint of what those facts should mean. And the way I did it was I told a story and um, I did research and I interviewed people and I built this you know, story out of words, either spoken or written. Um, and again, that's what I do as a writer every day. And I would work on cases for years at a time. And so when people said, my God, how can you write a novel? It might take you a year or more. And that was what my life was like. So it wasn't a huge transition. I've been writing since I was a kid. And I was trying to sell short stories to Playboy magazine when I was 17. Um, <laughs> you see, that's why I used to buy it for, the, for your stories. Yeah. Did you, did you have pictures in your stories, David? <laughs> Let's talk about the book that shot you to instant global stardom. Where did the idea for Absolute Power come from? Well, really, it, it came from the failure of a script that I had written. Um, in 1991, I wrote a script called Reverse Order. I had an agent in Hollywood, and I sent it out. It was basically Die Hard in the White House 20 years before they made those movies, Die Hard in the White House. Um, <laughs> and I, I had just joined a new firm. And um, while I was a trial lawyer for most of my career, I had been sent up to Long Island, New York, with a bunch of other lawyers. We had a client who was buying a bunch of banks, and our job was to review the bank ground leases. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, for any issues and problems. And I have to tell you, if you ever have any trouble falling asleep, just pull one of those suckers out and you'll be out in like three <laughs> seconds. So here I was doing this crap work and I'm waiting, you know, for my agent to, to call me to tell me the script sold. I've been getting encouraging messages during the day, you know, that's hot and this coverage is great. Everybody seems to love it. I think this one's going to sell. And then I got back to my hotel around, you know, it was late around midnight and nine o'clock LA time. And my agent called and said, Hey, you know, Warner's passed on it. So then it's the herd mentality out there. And so everybody passed on it. They figured it was, was a problem with the script. So it's not going to sell. And I remember staring out my window at midnight, you know, in Long Island going, you know, maybe it's not going to happen for me. I've been writing a long time. I really haven't have nothing to show for it. So I went back home and I remember walking past the White House one day, just at lunchtime, just to kind of clear my head. And I'd been a student of history. I was fascinated by Camelot and JFK and all the affairs he had while he was president. So a question struck me. What would happen if something really bad happened during one of these trysts? You know, something happened to whoever he was having the affair with. Because the president, the president goes down like a thousand careers go down. So what would people do to prevent that? So I had this idea of the president doing something really horrific to a woman that he was having an affair with, got out of hand, the Secret Service, they can't let the president die, they kill the woman to protect him, but they really, that's a bad thing because she was just trying to defend herself. And I had a burglar who saw the whole thing. So I made the good guys, the bad guys, the bad guys, the good guys. So that was my premise. And I spent three years writing it and I sent it out you know, to agents and that book really changed my life because I was determined to keep on writing. So I decided, you know what, if the scripts aren't going well, let me tackle the, you know, the mountaintop, which is the long form novel and see what I could do. And I just thought there was a good premise and a book that really, you know, I hadn't really seen anybody really attack that subject before. So off I went and, you know, things turned out okay. Yeah. 
And it was a bit more complicated than, as you say, Die Hard in the White House. Uh, I mean, that was Channing Tatum in White House Down, I think it was called, wasn't it? Something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> White House, Mount Olympus. Yeah, it was, it, trust me, I, I knew the ins and outs of the White House. And I, the way they got in was a lot cooler than it was in those movies. <laughs> and eventually the book was obviously a, a huge bestseller and also turned into a, a pretty good film, yes. I thought, uh, with Clint yes. Eastwood and yeah. le leaving uh, Clint's politics to one side completely. Um, yes, yes, let's do you that. Know, I'm a huge fan of, of, of Eastwood, the actor. Yes, uh, I was watching I a, a fistful. Of, I was watching a, a fistful of dollars again the other day. Uh, and if you had to, if you had to play one of Eastwood's characters, what sort of which of that massive, incredible oeuvre of of films would you would you side towards? Yeah, you know, I could I could play it uh, cheeky, and I'd say I'd, I'd be the the uh, the boxer on every every which way but lose with the orangutan. So <laughs> I, 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 in, in all in all seriousness, because I am afraid of orangutans, I think that I would I would probably play his character in In the Line of Fire, the uh, uh -huh. the, the aging Secret Service agent still trying to do the job, knowing yeah. that he's he's lost a step, uh, and then his career is tanking and he makes a huge mistake, but he has the gut instinct that something bad's going to happen. He takes it upon himself to sort of push against the, the flow of the water to, you know, follow his instincts and try to save the president, which is his job to do. I don't know, that one appealed to me, uh, particularly, you know, I've been doing this a long time. I'm not a young, young, young guy anymore. And um, I like that, you know, in the, in the middle of a, you know, on the downward slope of a career, this guy kind of stands up and, you know, just doesn't lose faith in himself yeah. and he keeps going. Yeah. I saw that a few months again, uh, ago again, uh, and I have to say, it's got one of the most Hollywood endings that you could possibly ask. I mean, he gets redemption. You know, he couldn't save JFK, but he gets the chance to fling himself uh, in front That's of right. the I've, I've got a president. question. I've got a question. David, how do you know you're scared of orangutans? <laughs> I used to go to school with a few. <laughs> they weren't actually orangutans. That's how I sort of perceived them as being. <laughs> Orangutans are actually incredibly popular in the UK because of an author called Terry Pratchett, who wrote yes. a who, uh, yeah he wrote a fantasy series where one of the lead characters was a librarian who magically was transformed into orangutan. So um, yeah, incredibly intelligent people, you know. <laughs> I, I think that you know we should allow some of them to vote over here as opposed to others. <laughs> Well, now we will never know if you're saying that because you like orangutans or you just feel threatened by them. Um, <laughs> let's, let's talk about your latest novel. Let's talk about Dreamtown from the Aloysius Archer. See, am I saying that right? Aloysius Archer? Yeah. You absolutely are. Yes. Tell us a bit about that book. Yeah, I, you know, I've been, I, I'm a crime noir uh, lover, you know, Dashiell Hammett, Raymond Chandler, I'm sort of the god of it all, I think, is Ross MacDonald. Um, that time period was really fascinating for me. It's before I was alive, but my, my dad and all of his brothers fought in World War II and in the late 40s and early 50s, there's upheaval across the world. In the United States, we've been through a depression, a dust bowl, a world war. People wanted to change. They wanted peace. They wanted prosperity. They wanted fun. Um, so Aloysius Archer, you know, he's been, he's fought in the war. He was in prison for a little bit of time. He wants to try something new. He heads west. He, um, he's a PI now in Los Angeles at the, you know, the golden age of Hollywood in the early fifties, the studio systems and all the stars we all know about. Um, and I love writing the atmosphere of that. You know, my job is to set you in that time period and I do it through a number of ways. You know, I give you the fashions, I give you the cigarettes, I give you the cars, I give you the guns, I give you the dialogue. Um, and, you know, the fifties were a really fascinating time period. If you were a person of color, not so great. And if you were a woman, not so great. It was a terrible time for people like that. Um, but you could, there was a, a great deal of psychology that went into sort of building these stories in that time period that I wanted to address in sort of a more contemporary way. Um, but I, I love mysteries and thrillers and I love those that have great atmosphere and the, the 50s certainly had that. Yeah, I, I mean, I love the series because I, I, I also write um... In, 19, in the 1950s, but in, in India. And one of the things I love about this book, uh, because I'm a huge film buff and it's uh, set in, in the film industry and the, the opening sequence where, uh, I read this a couple of weeks ago now, but um, where Aloysius walks into a bar, a Hollywood bar, and you've got a young Marilyn Monroe and you've got, I think you've described an, an aging Clark Gable at the bar yes. downing whiskeys. Yes. 
I mean, a wonderful, yes. wonderful scene to, to <laughs> cough, cough with. <laughs> Remind me of Abby. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm an aging Marilyn Monroe more than I. <laughs> I, you know, I, I saw that a little bit when you were on the video, so it's, uh, it's good. <laughs> uh, but Aloysius has a very complex and harrowing backstory. Where, where did uh, you sort of alluded to the fact that the character originated with your own family uh, and their experiences during the war? Yeah, it's. Um, I, when you're building a series character like this, it's always good, you know, the character's going to live through a number of books. And what I like to do is not just take a character and throw them into one mystery after another where there's nothing involving a character arc. You don't really learn a lot about the person's past, present, or future. Um, so I like to give my series characters baggage. Uh, and with Archer, I did it through his war experiences that I referenced throughout the series. I also did it from the fact that he was a stent in prison um, for a crime that... You know, he really wasn't guilty of that crime. He was guilty of being stupid, which a lot of young men, unfortunately, are. Um, and he, so he has those two, you know, those two things in his background that really have defined who he is. But so I had to, I had to tread cautiously. I didn't want to make him a vanilla white knight. He's not that. He's a lot more complicated than that. But he's a guy that knows a lot of crap going on in the world, a lot of bad guys, a lot of bad things happening. And he just wants to sort of take a stand against it. He wants to be a good guy in a bad world. As, as good as he can do it. He's not perfect, he makes a lot of mistakes along the way, but he's trying to do the right thing. And I think if that's a goal of yours in life, then your life's gonna you know, turn out relatively okay, um, but not without problems, not without challenges. Now, um, David, you're, I'm not the only crime writer that you, you've inspired over the years, and we've got plenty uh, of, of budding writers listening from around, around the world where we have an audience. Um, now, I've seen you on a masterclass, one of these fancy masterclasses, talking about your, your process. And uh, you say you're a meticulous researcher. And I, if I remember correctly, uh, you showed us these binders worth of information that you, yeah. that you collect. Um, how do you decide what to use out of all of that material? So the, the key to the research is, like, as I said in a masterclass, is to leave almost all of it out. Otherwise, you write a flip book, and a flip book is where the writer has done all this research. His ego doesn't allow him to leave any of it out. He doesn't want to take the time to integrate it, so he just picks a spot in the book and sticks it in. And so the reader is reading and runs with all this stuff and just flip, 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 past all that stuff, <laughs> and then gets back to the story. So for me, I, I do all this research so I can be immersed in that world. And the only way you can then cut almost all of it out is because you've immersed yourself in the world and understand it as, as best you can. But there's also a tactic you can use. I'll explain, I wrote a book called Zero Day and it had to do, there was a, an issue where my, my hero, John Puller was trapped in this concrete dome that the US Army had left, you know, abandoned for 50 years. And there was a nuclear device in that. And nuclear devices are extremely complicated. I wasn't, wasn't gonna put in 40 pages about how they worked and how you're supposed to diffuse them, all that stuff. So here, my problem was how do I explain in a page and a half to a lay person, you know, what's going on, what's going to happen and what could happen. And so here's how I decided to do it. I had John Puller who knew nothing about nuclear weapons, but his brother, Bobby Puller was an expert at this. So Bobby Puller's on the phone and he's giving his uh, brother a shorthand, you know, education. Here's what you got to do, John, in, in very simple terms. And that way, you know, me, the writer, didn't have to explain it to people. I had an expert explain to the reader and to John in very simple terms, here's what's going to happen. Um, so I could do it in a page and a half instead of 30 pages. Sometimes it's that, how that you set the scenario up. Yeah. That's very clever. I, I once uh, researched the Calcutta sewer system for three days and put it all in a novel because, as you say, because I needed to show everybody how smart I was. Uh, and obviously my editor cut it all out. Um, you say you immerse yourself in the research. How, how long does that take normally before you, before you put pen to paper on draft one? Um, how long would you spend on the research? I tend to research throughout the writing of the book, maybe until probably the last half. Um, so I will research while I'm writing. I don't wait to do all the research and then start writing because sometimes the more the research you do opens up plot devices and possibilities you didn't really imagine before and vision. And I will write some and then I might come to a plot issue uh, because of what I've written and then go out and research it to try to solve it or think of another way to do it if it's not working out completely right. So you have to be flexible on that. Don't just say, I got one month to research it and I'm going to write and I'm not going to research anything else. Allow yourself flexibility and latitude. There are no rules to this game. You, you create your own rules and make you the most efficient and comfortable and productive. Mm -hmm. uh, so 
you can fit your own world in that, you know, the own spectrum of how you go about doing what you do. Um, so, but depending on the subject matter, you know, it could be several months of research, um, depending on if I pick a subject like nuclear weaponry or, you know, an agency I'm not all that familiar with. So I have to go out and talk to a lot of people that work at an agency like that and figure out what they do. Um, you can't, you know, you can't Wikipedia this stuff because if you Wikipedia, you're just going to stick stuff in and anybody can find it out easily. I've always thought that the best research I did is why I go to places I talk to people because people who actually do these jobs, they don't just, they don't give you back regurgitate encyclopedias to you. They give you the shorthand of what they do because nobody, you know, that's, that's the industry they work in. So they're going to shorthand and abbreviate lots of stuff. And that gives you kind of an edge over, you know, if you just Wikipedia or something, you're not going to find it in there. And I also, I love talking to people who have specialized knowledge and expert. I'm curious about all this stuff. That's why I wanted to write about it. And to sit down and listen to people that do it for a living, it's pretty damn fascinating. I imagine you also get these wonderful stories from them or the, the most interesting nuggets of, of detail that they can add that, that, that put the color the, well, around the facts. It, it's absolutely, you know, I was Secret Service agents is female, right? And she goes, I'll tell you something that you probably won't find out anyplace else. You know, where do we put our gun when we go to the bathroom? Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I put mine in the crotch of my pantyhose, just so you know, it's always there available and ready to go. <laughs> That's exactly where I'd be put in. And I I'm, I'm not going to tell you what I'm putting anywhere. Um, <laughs> where we put our coffee mugs, I was going to say. My coffee mugs. You, my, a man's coffee mugs are his own private kingdom. Um, David, um, you know, not only are you one of the best-selling thriller writers of all time, you are also known for your philanthropy. Um, you run the Wish You Well Foundation with your wife, Michelle. Tell us, tell our audience a wee bit about that. Yeah, we've, we started it about 20 years ago. And when I first started out, I was traveling everywhere. And a lot of the events that I went to were sponsored by friends of the library, libraries, or literacy organizations. And I got a crash course over about a year of how bad the literacy problem was in the United States. About 54% of American adults read at a sixth grade or below level. Um, you know, wow. our, our, our grades go up to 12, K through 12. So before you could go to college, that's unacceptable, it's deplorable. So it, it's not its not about reading the next bestseller on the beach, it's about being a productive member of a democracy because our elections and our leaders are only as good as the people who are voting for them. And if you're not informed about stuff, I, you know, I live near a city, Washington DC, where they have highly paid people whose sole job it is in life is to tell you how you're supposed to vote. And they will feed you all sorts of information and disinformation to lead you down that path. And the only weapon you have to fight back with is your own intellect, your own experiences, what you've read, how you process, synthesize information. So if people aren't reading, you know, they're sort of sheeps, sheeps and lambs to the slaughter. Um, and that's the only way to have a sustainable, you know, growing, strong democracy um, is the intellectual capability and good decision making of its voters and without look for me the, the verb to think is the same as the verb to read it's impossible to do one without uh, the other so we fund literacy organization programs and initiatives across the country we, we funded programs in all 50 states and counting we've given out millions of dollars we've helped millions of people to learn how to read at a higher level both children you know middle grade and adults um, because i know that really you know what's at stake is sort of well, we're, we're seeing that right now. We're seeing it right now in, on the world stage. And I, I think these, these problems that you talk about, you know, they're, they're as prevalent here as they are in America. And the way the world is now in terms of polarization and so much false information, um, you know, literacy and, and being able to, to get the right information is, is vital. Um, if I could go off on a tangent, just one, one moment. I mean, from this side of the Atlantic, it strikes me at least that, you know, American democracy is, is has become very commercialized in terms of the amount of money spent on elections and, and uh, lobbying. Um, do you think it's been hijacked? Has American democracy been hijacked by people, by the highest bidder? It has been, unfortunately. And it's not just, you know, funds, dark funds coming from within the country. It's dark funds coming from without the country, too. We're sort of, in many ways, the prized egg and people will spend billions of dollars. You know, for me, the simple answer is public financing for all elections. Uh, each side has the same amount of money. It's paid through the public. Canada has that. Canada has their presidential or their prime minister elections. Yeah. Um, start, they last like three months. They cost like, I don't know, $50 million and it's done. Our presidential elections last like, it seems like 20 years. 
and they cost like $3 billion. Um, it's absolutely crazy. They still don't last as long as, uh, they, they still don't last as long as the Indian elections. Uh, I, yeah. I think, well, I think the last Indian elections were the longest running elections of all, of all time. Um, well, it just, it wears people down and it, it dilutes, you know, significance of it. And our, it seems like once, once you, what, what's happened over here, I'm sure you know, is that one side of the political aisle has had made it seem like our elections aren't worth anything anymore and they're not fair and they're being controlled, which is absurd. And then one, but once you start questioning the integrity of elections and all of a sudden you don't have a democracy anymore. Absolutely. Have you ever, uh, have, have you ever considered running for any sort of office david because you're clearly a political chap you've worked in in dc you've written about politics yeah I've telegenic as well the robert redford of uh, of crime writing yeah. yep the robert redford of crime writing with a little bit of orangutan thrown in um <laughs> i i um i've been asked a number of times about that and, but here's what i do instead my one i would have to get married to another woman because my wife sort of said no and so that's I, I love her more than I love with being a politician. But I, we both support candidates that we really believe in, uh, up and down the line in our state and other states as well. We put a lot of money, time, and effort into that. We campaign uh, for them. We fundraise for them because I, we understand how important it is. Both of my kids are really very politically activated. My my daughter, she's my oldest. She's going to uh, going to be going to law school. She just wants to burn down the entire system over here. She goes, why do we only have two parties? I want a parliamentary system. This is ridiculous. And by the way, global warming is real. You want us to go step by step, little by little. You know, you, you're not going to be alive. I am. <laughs> we don't have time to go little by little. Yeah, she's right. She is right. If she's yes. got any spit. All of these points, on all of these points from polarization to polar caps melting, she's right on all of them. And, and if yes. she's got any spare time, Maybe she could come over and do some burning in our own democracy. It needs to be a bit of a clear out as well. Yes. Um, David, what are you working on next? So I have just been, I have three books coming out this year. Dreamtown that we talked about. I have a book coming out in July called The 620 Man. It's a new character, uh, I think beginning of a new series. The title refers to the train that he, this the character takes in every morning from Mount Kisco to New York to Manhattan where he works in, uh, on Wall Street. Um, I had the idea for this last year when I was riding my bike and the sort of the story just unspooled and there's financial elements to it. There are political elements to it where I've sort of extrapolated out, at least in my own mind, things that happen in the real world and just take them to what I feel is the logical conclusion of what this represents for the world. Um, so that'll be in July. And right now I'm finishing up new Amos Decker. Uh, he'll be out in October. He's my memory man. Yeah. Um, so yeah, if I've um, you know, he was last seen in the fracking industry, wasn't he? If I remember, he was in North Dakota, absolutely. You know, solving some mysteries up there. And I have to say, with you know, with COVID and my travel being canceled, I just like a lot of writers, I just sat home and wrote. And you know, you, I you clearly don't find it difficult juggling uh, all of these series because you've got like seven, maybe or more, yeah. eight series I, now. I, yeah, yeah, I, I, I cherish them all. I mean, they're they're all very significant to me, and I love going back to these characters and bringing them back. And I have to say, with all the stuff that's been going on in the world the last few years, that um, my books have been my cocoon. You know, where I could, I, I'm a voracious reader. I'm I attuned to the news. You know, I talk to people all the time about what's going on around the world. But you know, many hours a day, I just retreat to my office. I pull out my papers. I get my laptop fired up and. I just cocoon back to my books just to provide some sanity. David, you, you've talked about, you know, COVID closing things down, but now we're opening up. Uh, are we likely to see you in the UK anytime soon? I I would love it. I mean, I used to travel there pre-COVID every year um, and sometimes twice a year. So as soon as, you know, that travel opens up, absolutely. I love, I love touring UK. You know, I've been, I've done Wales and Ireland and Scotland and all wow. over England from London to North England and Adrian's Wall and all that stuff. And, um, which was interesting, you know, I, I was joking a little bit about it. We were driving up there and we, our driver said, okay, we're going to take a left-hand turn. And so we took a left-hand turn down this really dirt road. And we came to, we passed a couple of, you know, farms with sheep and stuff. And he stopped and he goes, okay, welcome to Scotland. <laughs> which is the best of the uk david the best well, you were at bloody scotland a couple of years ago if i That's remember right. i just i that, just missed you i think i came in the day after you'd you'd left that uh, was 
that was so much fun. I mean, leading, you know, 1500 people down a slick and very steep cobblestone walkway and we're all carrying burning torches. Um, I was, and I remember going down and feeling the knife in my sock because I was in my kilt. The knife in my sock. My scheme do, right. It started to slip out. I thought if I stop, bend down and pick up this knife, like 1500 <laughs> people with flaming swords are going to catapult over me. <laughs> Well, we uh, hope to have you back there, David. Yes. Uh, well, I'm going to I'm going to nip in and see if we can get David up to to Harrogate for the Thiexton's. When was the last time you did that, David? Because I sit on that. Yeah, floor. that was probably about five five years ago. Okay, that we've got to get you on terrific. there. I've got to get yeah. you on there because I, you know, I sit on that board now. A beer sits on the bloody Scotland one, so we've got to get you up to Thiexton's. Where's the diversity you see on these boards now, David? <laughs> <laughs> and and the last yeah. question I have for you, David, how are you with Indian food? I, my, my family loves it. And I'm, a, we, we have really um, good friends from India and they introduced us years ago. We had kids about the same age. So we sort of raised our kids together. Oh. Um, and they introduced us to a lot of Indian food. And, you know, I love a lot of it. I, I can't go super spicy, but. Okay. The, that, the reason yeah. I ask is because prior to the pandemic, um, Abir and I used to conduct uh, our, our early podcasts from the kitchen of his mum's small flat in, in London. And she used to feed all of our guests when they came in. So if you're, <laughs> That's this, awesome. is, this, is, this is an Asian podcast. We have to do it at mum's place and she has to feed us. <laughs> the next yeah. time you're in London, let us know and we'll record you on a podcast and we'll feed you once, uh, once that, the world is that, returned to normal. That would be awesome. Well, you know, the Italians do it the same way. So it's exactly. okay. I, I all, all the best people do, Dave. <laughs> David, it's uh, it's been truly amazing for me personally to have you on this podcast. So thank you so much it's, for finding the time. Yeah. I, I should say I should say I am so glad that from now on you shall be known as the Robert Redford of thriller writing. <laughs> thank uh, you, guys. gentlemen. It started here, David. Thank you so much for your time. It's been great fun. It's, it's been fun for me too. Thank you. Oh. that brings us to the close of another episode once again if you've liked the show can we ask that you please leave a review sign up for regular episodes using your favorite podcast app and please do spread the word so mr vasim khan do you think you would slap anyone to defend my honor well i i guess that would depend entirely on on just how big they were and how likely it was that they'd slap me back That's... maybe a five-year-old <laughs> it's very courageous of you Ladies and gentlemen, on that bombshell, and until the next episode, we have been your friends, the Red Hot Chili Writers. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.